So one of the things that my family likes to do is eat tacos. And um, yes, amen. And I found something out, though, about, about eating tacos that I... Tacos. I don't know why I say it like that. Tacos. Um, <laughs> is that there is, a, there is a love-hate relationship. There are two kinds of people in this world. There is the kinds of people that love cilantro, and there's the kinds of people that hate it. So I did a little research this week, and I realized that there's actually blogs out there called I Hate Cilantro. <laughs> and then I found this New York Times article which suggested that people were so into figuring out why some people love it and some people hate it, that there's actually, they're genetically disposed, to, it tastes like soap. Anybody taste cilantro like soap? Mary Brandom. Greg Anderson. There you go. Well, I say all that to say that there's a love-hate relationship. And in our text today, uh, in First Samuel 18, this is a great segue here. There is a love-hate relationship towards David. Jonathan loves him, and Saul hates him. It's kind of like soapy cilantro. And what we see here in our text this morning is, is two different ways to approach uh, a human being. And on the one hand, he finds a great friend in the man Jonathan. And on the other hand, he finds an enemy who's jealous of him. He's envious of him. He covets what he has. And so we're going to look at a text this morning, look at David and Jonathan and Saul, and we're going to unpack this text under just two points. Point one will be envy, and point two will be friendship. Because I think we're going to see that the opposite of envying someone is to be their friend, and vice versa. So let's read our text this morning. This is 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 16. By way of context, this is immediately after the David and Goliath passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. So this, this moment that we're going to see here is coming right on the heels of, of the defeat of the Philistines. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but, had, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text. We're grateful for this word this morning. We pray, God, that you would illuminate it to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that the Spirit would fall fresh on us to give us ears to hear, Lord, and that as was prayed in the prayer room this morning, that we would not simply be those that hear the word and and, and walk away from it and forget it, but we would be doers of your word, O Lord. We pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to do that, and I pray that you'd help me as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. So David's on the rise here. David is on the rise towards being a king, but his successes are attended by challenges. And so as I said, we're going to look at these uh, two different challenges. There's one challenge and this one success, rather. Point one is envy, looking at King Saul. Let's start by looking at the layers of, of jealousy and envy, because it's a slippery road for us, and it comes to us in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. Verse 8 says this, And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? Okay, just a a cursory look here at verse 8. We see that Saul is comparing himself to David. And that really is the first first step towards jealousy and envy. It's just simply compare. You compare your life to another person's life. You compare your income to their income. You compare your house to their house, your kids to their kids. Your spouse to their spouse, your car to their cars, your status to their status. I think what's interesting here is that Saul, in pretty much every material way, was superior to David. Saul was the king, and David is this peasant farmer. But Saul was comparing the glory. He was comparing the status that David had that made him envious. You know, my, my younger sister, Megan, she um, was kind of like that for me to her because she's a very outgoing, she's a very likable, she's loved by everyone. She's, she, I, I see the, her Facebook and Instagram and, and my friends like her more than they like me. It's really weird. She doesn't even live here. She lives in Virginia. I'm envious of her. But no one simply just compares and says, oh, that's interesting. We compare and then we want. We desire what the other person has. And that comes to us in the next verse, verse 9. Verse 9 says, And Saul eyed David from that day on. The NIV puts it this way. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. He sees what David has. He sees the status. He sees the accolades that he's receiving. And he wants it. He's jealous for it. He longs for it. He compares and then he desires. He eyes him with this jealous kind of eye. And we, of course, do this too. We don't just look at all the things that I mentioned and say, oh, that's interesting. We look and we want. We look and we desire it. But the third step is the most deadly step in this path of envy and jealousy. Verse 8 is comparing. Verse 9 is desiring. And verse 10 is hating. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while Saul, or David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, 
Saul had his spear in hand. His comparing went to desiring, and his desiring went to hating. He wanted to kill him. He couldn't stand what he had that he, couldn't, that he didn't have himself. NIV translates it, he was raging within his house while David was playing the lyre. We begrudge what other people have. We feel like they don't deserve it. And Saul is about to make plans here to actually have David murdered. The next verse, which we didn't read this morning, verse 17 says, Then Saul said to David, Here's my elder daughter. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. He plots to have him murdered on the battlefield. He can't stand the accolades and the success that he's having. One commentator, Tim Chester, says that envy is the mother of malice. And malice gives birth to murder. Envy is the mother of malice. And malice gives birth to murder. What's one of the reasons that envy is so dangerous is, is what we've been talking about here, that it, 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 it grows in nature. It has this verse 8, verse 9, verse 10 kind of effect even in our own lives. You know, we can say uh, just by way of kind of understanding the nature of envy that envy is, is different from pretty much every other kind of sin because at least other sins at the get-go, there's some satisfaction, okay? There, you know, uh, gluttony, for example, at least there's satisfaction on the front end and then regret comes. Or even sexual sin, we could say, there's something satisfying on the front end and then, and then sorrow comes. There's nothing satisfying on the front end of envy. It's, 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 it, you're, you're failed from, from the first step. There's nothing satisfying about, about desiring what your friend has and you can't have it. There's nothing satisfactory about that. So how does it look in our own lives? What does it do to us in our own lives, this kind of envy, this kind of jealousy? Well, first, is it brings a lack of contentedness to us. It brings a lack of contentedness in our own life. You know, it's been said, you were, you know, you, we, were, we were fine with the house that we lived in until we saw the house that our brother had. You were fine with, with, with your pay until you heard what your coworkers had. It brings this, this, this lack of contentedness in our lives. Second thing it does to us is it causes us to reinterpret other people's motives. It causes us to reinterpret other people's motives. It's interesting, our text says in verse 7 and 8, and the women sang to one another as they said, actually go back to 6. It says that the women were dancing and singing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. David has struck down his thousands, and Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Look, the women are coming out in joy. They're coming out delighted to greet him. And commentators have suggested that the women are just simply using Hebrew parallelism, Hebrew uh, poetry. So they're not, they're, not, they're not seeking to say something underhanded to Saul by saying, Saul, you've done thousand. David, you've done your ten thousand. But Saul takes it. And he reinterprets it and it makes him angry, it says. It says that he listened to what they said, he heard it, and he was angry. They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And we do that all the time. We constantly reinterpret one another's motives. 
Especially when, the, when envy and jealousy start to sneak in. We think we know why somebody's doing something. And we begin to replay this tape in our head again and again and again, kind of on this constant feedback loop. Thinking that we know what somebody else is doing. And it causes us to look on them in a certain way, a way of disdain. Causes us to a lack of contentedness. It causes us to reinterpret other people's motives. The third thing it does is that envy keeps us from receiving the good gifts that God is giving us. Envy keeps us from receiving the good gifts that God is giving us. David is a gift to the nation of Israel. His leadership is a gift to King Saul himself. David is out there fighting battles for Saul and he's victorious and successful in all that he does. But Saul's envy keeps him from seeing the good gift that David is actually to him and to the whole nation. We get envious of of people in leadership positions, not realizing that they're actually God's good gifts to us. We get envious of other people making more money around us, not realizing that it's God's gift to us, that this person is successful and can be generous to the church and generous to the poor and generous to the community around us. Keeps us from receiving God's good gifts to us. Third thing, fourth thing it does, envy. It robs us of relational joy. It robs us of relational joy. If our friends or fellow church members were succeeding and they were growing in happiness, we too could be growing in happiness right along with them. We could be rejoicing with those who rejoice. But envy does this thing where it turns things on its head, where we rejoice when people are failing and we, and, we, and, we, and we envy when people are succeeding. And the fifth thing it does, which is probably the scariest of them all, is that you get more of what you have. You get more envious. That place where it says that uh, the spirit, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. There's one other place that that phrase is used. And it's used in Judges chapter 9, verses 23. And it says that, And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. It's saying that it's giving you more of what you already are. The worst kind of judgment is to be given over. Paul says in Romans that God gave them up in their lusts of the impurity of their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged a truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gave them over to the things that they were already wanting and desiring and they went further and further down this awful treacherous pit. The thing about envying is that it grows in our scripture reading this morning, we read about Cain and Abel. And Cain is, is jealous of his brother Abel's acceptance. And God warns him that his sin wants to master him. He says that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. He's saying it's wanting to devour you. It's like a lion at the door. That your envy will just lead to more envy and more envy and more envy. C.S. Lewis has a place where he says that we are all becoming something. That there are no small decisions in life. That every day, every choice, every effort to consider 
and reinterpret the motives of other people. Every time we, we want what somebody else has, we're actually becoming something. We're either becoming more gracious and more Christ-like and more godly and more content and more joyful, or we're becoming more envious. It's why when people are, you know, when they're, when they, when they, when they're, when they're old in, in age, you tend to find two, kind, two poles. You either find people that are very gentle and warm and kind and nice to be around, or you find people that are harsh and critical and brash. Look, envy may seem small. It may not seem like a big deal at the moment. It may just seem like a little headache. But brain tumors start like little headaches. And then they take over the whole body. Envy is like that. In Romans, Paul says that the last commandment, you shall not covenant, you shall not covet, you shall not covenant, you guys should covenant, and go back there and sign. Paul takes the last of the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, and he uses it as an illustration. He says it was the linchpin. It was the one that did him in. Because it's the clearest commandment that deals with matters of the heart, as opposed to simply external behavior. Because you can look at the other commandments and say, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, and pretty easily, from an external perspective, say, yeah, I'm good. But when you get to number 10, and it says, you shall not covet, it's talking about the matters and the motives of the heart. And Paul says for him, it was the one that revealed everything. Do you see that the opposite of coveting is contentment? Is there contentment in your heart? Or do you look inside yourself and see comparison? Even in the Ten Commandments, even when the law was given to Moses, the commandments are fairly brief. When we got to the second five, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But when we get to 10, even the Mosaic law, you shall not cover your neighbor's house, you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We just, we, as a people, we, we, we love stories of, of, of people falling from grace. Stories, we, there's just something in us that begrudges success. So now that we may all feel pretty darn bad about ourselves, that's, that's point one, that we are prone to envy. We are prone to be like Saul in our natural state, in our sinful state. That's one way relate to David. But point two is to relate to David in terms of friendship, in terms of friendship. Verse one starts, um, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of David was knit to the soul, so the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loved him. Now, I'm just gonna make a very brief 30 second aside here, because this question may be in your mind. Um, some have suggested that 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 David and Jonathan is suggesting some kind of homosexual relationship and that this is somehow therefore licensed to, to, to endorse homosexual behavior. I've got a couple answers to that. 
And the first one is that, uh, is that the writer of Samuel is absolutely not afraid to call David out on his sin. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba, and when David has, um, has Uriah the Hittite murdered, the narrative is not afraid to call sin, sin. I just couldn't imagine that somehow the narrator would just pass this over and, and somehow endorse it. And the second thing is just uh, that this would be suggested of this text is just the sexualization of our culture. It's unfortunate that our culture views everything in terms of, uh, of a sexual kind of nature. It was not uncommon a hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago for men to be uh, more affectionate to one another, to embrace one another. Even the scriptures themselves talk about kissing one another and greeting one another with a holy kiss. But unfortunately, we live in a culture that has so sexualized all kind of affectionate behavior that that's where our minds go. End of my aside. But right here, we do see something remarkable from Jonathan. As we've said, Jonathan, he's the son of King Saul, which means that Jonathan is the heir to the throne. What's even more is that I, maybe in the past, we've, we've considered these, these, Jonathan and David to be um, uh, uh, the same age. But, but we know from the text that Jonathan is at least 27 years older than David. Just by looking at the years that Saul reigned, looking at how old did you need to be to serve in the military and so on and so forth. Because we know that, that Jonathan began to serve in the third year of Saul's reign. He's much older than him. And he's, he's the heir to the throne. And this is right after the encounter with, with Goliath. And Jonathan perceives that David is to be the next king over Israel. He knows that God has anointed David to be king and not him. So what does he do in verse 4? He strips himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword. This is an incredible act of honor and submission. He gives his robe and he gives his sword. But I don't think I need to explain in much detail what this means. What is his robe? It's a symbol of his kingship. It's a symbol of him being the heir to his father. And he takes it off, not in envy, not in jealousy, but in love. And he gives it to David. And the second thing he does is he gives him his sword. He hands him his sword. An envious man would drive the sword through his belly. But Jonathan loves David. And an act of giving the sword is an act of honor and submission. He's saying, in a sense, command me. Be king over Israel, be king over me. Jonathan sees that God's king coming into the world and coming into Israel, and he knows it's not him, and he knows he must get off the throne and get out of the way. He knows, he knows he must get off the throne and get out of the way. In the next few chapters, David is living in Saul's house, and Saul simply hates him. And Jonathan becomes this advocate for David. He becomes an advocate for David, to even his father, because he made this covenant with him. He made this voluntary pledge to David. He says, my soul was knit together with you. He loved him, it says. And in the next chapter, in chapter 19, there's another plot from Saul to kill David. But Jonathan intervenes, and he, and he persuades his father Verse 19 says, chapter 19, verse 1 says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, 
Saul's son delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard this morning. Stay in that secret place. The story goes on. That Jonathan goes to his father and he, and he intervenes and he convinces him to, to not kill him that day. He manages to persuade his father to relent and he succeeds. But it doesn't last long because by the time we get to chapter 23, Saul again is on the pursuit and David needs Jonathan. And in chapter 23, David reaffirms his pledge and his covenant with David. He says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of my father Saul shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. You see that you could almost say that Jonathan and David's life, and commentators have noticed this, is bracketed by these covenants. In chapter 18, they pledge to one another. In chapter 23, they pledge to one another. And their whole interaction together is bracketed by these two pledges that they make. And one commentator, Eugene Peterson, says it like this. It says that Jonathan's friendship brackets the evil that David was experiencing. That his friendship brackets the evil that David was experiencing. Listen to this extended quote from Peterson on the notion of friendship. Friendship was much esteemed by our ancestors, but it has fallen on hard times among moderns. We have acquaintances that we pick up from time to time to augment our pleasure or needs. But the kind of spiritual kinship energized by affection and sealed by covenant between David and Jonathan is rare. It is the least demanding and least needy of human relationships, but it is also the most necessary for realizing who we are, for becoming ourselves, letting others become themselves with no strings attached. C.S. Lewis prized this kind of friendship as the form of love by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the other forms of love. This David-Jonathan friendship is love that sets the other to be himself or herself, a commitment with no demands. In a culture like ours, in which there is widespread avoidance of commitments because they are confining. This story of a love commitment that is both is freeing and it is a breath of fresh air. Healthy relationships do not restrict our lives, they expand our lives. Healthy relationships do not restrict our lives, they expand our lives. We know these stories of David and Jonathan, of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer, Frodo and Sam. C.S. Lewis, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully of all human loves, the crown of life, the school of virtue. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and a family, a man needs a few friends. Friendship is so sharply distinct from both the other kinds of loves, affection and eros. Eros is the kind of romantic love that a man has between his wife and a wife to her husband. It's a romantic love. And affection is is a love that a father and a mother have for their children to rear them and raise them up. He says, but friendship is is so distinct from both of those kinds of loves. Because without eros, none of us would be begotten. And without affection, none of us would have been reared. But we live and we breed without friendship. He concludes, 
Affection and eros were too obviously connected to your nerves. They're too obviously shared with the brutes. But in friendship, we have a luminous, tranquil, relational world of relationships which are freely chosen. You get away. He says, this alone of the loves seems to raise you to the level of the gods and the angels. Listen to Proverbs 17, 17, as we explore this a little bit further. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Friends, this text is telling us, is what gets us through tough times. And Jonathan was that for David. The evil that is occurring from Saul from 18 to 23 is insulated and is bracketed by the love of a friend, Jonathan. You say, what about family? What about siblings and spouses? Yes, but only if they are friends. Only if there's that kind of relationship that you can have with them. Adversity will come into our lives. And this text is telling us that we can't get through them without friends. Friends get us through adversity. And there's two features of friendship that I'm going to point out to us. And we've talked about this before, so I'm going to be a little bit brief for the sake of time. I'm going to summarize some of this. But there's two necessary features of friendship. And one is constancy, and the other feature is candor. Constancy and candor. And these are right out of Derek Kidner's commentary on Proverbs. Constancy and candor. Constancy. Proverbs tell us that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Or that verse we just read, 1717, there's a friend that loves at all times. There's constancy to it. But we're not simply supposed to just expect that kind of loyalty and friendship and not give it back. Because Proverbs 27.10 will tell us, do not forsake your friend and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Not a fair weather friend. Fair weather friends are many in life. Fair weather friends are many in the Bible. Fair weather friends are many in the book of Proverbs. But a friend is one who is constant. Look, there's a lot of different kinds of relationships that we have. Okay, the relationships that we have to people. We have economic relationships with people, which we're, there's a cost-benefit analysis, and that's okay. The relationship that you have um, with, with, with your mechanic, okay? You may be friendly to one another, but the relationship is based on a cost-benefit analysis. If you all of a sudden start charging too much, you'll go down the road to somebody else, and that's okay. Or we have relationships that are calculated relationships, that are calculated relationships. I had, a, I had an acquaintance well, many years ago and uh, he, he once told me that, that he, he goes from church to church. He spends a couple years in a mega church, and then he goes another couple years in a different mega church, and so on and so forth. And he does so to build business relationships. He does so to build partnerships, to network, to expand you know, his horizon, and so on. It's a calculated relationship. The other thing here that we, that we oftentimes do, though, the kinds of ways that we relate to relationships, they're economic, they're calculated, but sometimes relationships just get too hard. The people need more than they're actually giving to you in that moment. But that's the nature of constancy. Because brothers are born for adversity. Jonathan sticks by David. 
There is a brother, there is a friend that sticks through thick and thin. Friends don't let you down. And second, friends are candid. Constancy and candor. Candor, there's honesty between them. You're open with your life to another person. Real friends are open with one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, the scriptures tell us. They also tell us that a man that flatters his friend with, friend with, 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 with speech spreads a net for his feet. Not just words of flattery, but words of honesty. Unfortunately, it's later said of David in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6, uh, of his relationship to his son Adonijah. It says that at no time did he displease his son, saying, why have you done this and that? He didn't cross the will of Adonijah. He wasn't candid with him, and it cost Adonijah his life. Proverbs 28 tells us, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find favor more than he who flatters with his tongue. Friends are constant and friends are candid. They're honest. They're honest about their struggles, honest about their flaws. Which is why, by way of application, you know, this winter we're making such an effort to make sure that every member of this church is in some discipleship relationship. It's why we're making the push towards triads and community groups, realizing that we all need friendships. We need those in our lives that will be constant with us and those in our lives that will bring candor to our lives. We simply need it. And our effort and our help to you as your pastors and elders is to help make sure you have those kinds of relationships in your lives. Let us help you get into those kinds of relationships because adversity will come. The struggles of life will come. And the way that God in his grace meets you is through the vehicle of another person. The evil of your life very well may be bracketed by a friendship from someone like Jonathan. Let me draw out a few more principles here about Jonathan. Just one, primarily, what it means to love, and then we'll move to a close. It says, simply, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and David loved him as his own soul. There's a kind of uh, a way that we can understand love as saying, I'm not going to be happy unless you are succeeding. I'm not going to be happy unless you are succeeding. I'll give us another quote this morning. It's a fairly quote heavy, but these people are smarter and better than me. This is Jonathan Edwards. And here Jonathan Edwards is talking about uh, heaven as a world of love. He's describing what heaven must be like. And he gets to a section where he talks about envying and jealousy and how uh, the absence of it in heaven. He says, not the least remainder of any principle of envy shall exist to be exercised toward angels or any other beings who are superior in glory. So those that actually are superior to us, there will be no envy exercised from us to them. Nor shall there be aught like contentment or sliding of those who are our inferiors. Those that have a lower station in glory than others suffer no diminution of their own happiness by seeing others above them in glory. On the contrary, 
all the members of that blessed society rejoice in each other's happiness. For the love of benevolence is perfect in them all. Everyone has not only a sincere, but a perfect goodwill to each other. Sincere and strong love is greatly gratified and delighted in the prosperity of the beloved object. And if the love be perfect, the greater the prosperity of the beloved is, and the more the lover pleased and delighted. What it's saying is that we in heaven will actually be delighted and ourselves receive greater joy by seeing those who have a greater station than we do. It'll bring us pleasure. It'll delight to see our brothers in glory who have a superior status than we do. It'll actually bring us joy. I long for that day. Because we so often look at those who are more successful than we are and we simply envy them. It doesn't bring us delight. It brings inner chaos. It brings turmoil. It brings lack of contentedness, lack of joy, reinterpreting of motives and so on and so forth. But real love like Jonathan has to David says that my happiness is bound up in their happiness. Real love and real happiness is bound up in our friends and our neighbors' happiness. Their success, their joy, their prosperity brings us all the more joy and delight. And as Christians who have a foretaste of the future because the Spirit resides in us, because the Spirit has made us to be sons of God and given us a new heart and given us new affections, we can begin to actually live like we will in that world of love today. And we can do it by the power of the gospel. You see, we've been saying, let's go back to that robe scene for a moment. Jonathan takes off his robe and he lays it aside. Jonathan takes off his bow, he lays it aside. He takes off his sword and he lays it aside. He empties of himself of his glory and he makes himself vulnerable. Who does that sound like? Jesus is the true and better David, to be sure. But in this text, Jesus is the true and better Jonathan. He's the friend that we all need. The one who will lay aside his glory for our sake. The one who will become utterly vulnerable for our sake. Jesus is the true and better friend. He's the friend to us that we ultimately need. He was so vulnerable that his hands were nailed open for us. Completely vulnerable. Completely constant with you. In that moment, he could have called down legions of angels when he was on the cross. But in the greatest act of love, the greatest act of friendship, he stayed. He was constant with you. He remained till the bitter end. He is the Savior King. Edwards says this, God never begrudges his people anything they desire or are capable of as being too good for them. When we see what we're getting, and we see what we did to get it, that the Lord Jesus himself, as the true and better friend, emptied himself, looking down at the crowd, mocking, hating, jeering. 
and we see what he gave us. He gave us life, life everlasting, life eternal, and he does it by sheer mercy and grace. How can we be envious of other people? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Are you looking for that friend that will stick closer than a brother? You already have it. And when you see it and you can stand on that foundation, that you have the true friendship of the one who will never leave you or forsake you, who's constant with you, who's candid with you, then you can be the kind of person that can actually be a friend to other human beings. Let us pray. Father, help us now. Help us now as we go to the Lord's table and we celebrate what you've done for us. How you emptied yourself for our sake, taking on the form of a servant to the point of even death and death on a cross. We ask God that we would see it, behold it, and that you would make us to be the kinds of people who aren't envious, who don't strive, who aren't jealous, but are content and have the power to be friends to those around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the Lord's Supper now where we can celebrate the life, death, and resurrection and the, and the, and the anticipated coming of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, if you're a Christian, you've been baptized, uh, you can, and you're visiting us from another church, you're welcome to join us at the, at the table here. We're going to come up row by row, take the elements back to your seat, and one of the elders will lead us in communion corporately.